Welcome to an episode of the Tiffa Mahapi Show hosted by myself. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world. I believe that opening businesses and, and the healthy capitalism without the corporations which destroy the environment, etc. I think be naive to say that we've completely overcome any polarizing or divisive issues on the racial front. We thank you for taking some time out to listen to the podcast. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we have witnessed many media organizations announcing downsizing measures, and in some cases, complete shutdowns. Many have cited the COVID-19 pandemic as a reason, while some have blamed digitization. My guest on this podcast presents another angle. The problem is it's a human behavior, and how do we change human behavior is, whew, is hectic. And we programmed to do the easy stuff rather than do the hard stuff. That's Oresti Patricios, CEO of Oniko Group, a South African company that has established itself as one of the leaders when it comes to media monitoring, as well as research for reputation, media, advertising, and brand. What Oresti means by that is that what the media is experiencing is also a human behavior problem. That is, part of the problem with journalism today it's also that some organizations have not been buying their minds on how they can publish better quality journalism that is also profitable. So as a result, they default to what is easy to do. You can never solve it all. I think what we need to do is solve some bits and edge forward and, and start solving others. In this episode of the podcast, we extensively discuss other problems facing the media, such as fake news, programmatic advertising, dropping revenues, and more. We also talk about life and mortality. Before we get into the conversation I had with Oresti, I want to tell you a little bit about Truehost, which is the sponsor of this episode of the Tefumohapi Show. Truehost offers domain names, web hosting, free website builders, and email solutions. As a listener of my podcast, you get a discount when purchasing anything at Truehost. Visit truehost.africa forward slash iAfrican. Remember, that's iAfrican with a K. Select the products you want and apply the discount code iAfrican. Don't forget again, that's I-A-F-R-I-K-A-N. I trust you'll enjoy the conversation I had with Oresti. Uh, it's been a long time since I chatted to you, Oresti. How are you keeping Oh, good. Yeah, it has been a while, eh? Uh, but I see you doing some amazing stuff, eh? So well done. Thank you, thank you. And it's it's interesting, and it's actually good I'm chatting to you because last year, towards the end of last year, I turned 40, and uh, I've been reading up and talking to my dad and talking to older people about growing older. And one thought that sort of crossed my mind, well, not once, several times, and that's probably the first question I'm going to ask you, is sort of the reality of my mortality is becoming like a little bit more real because I thought about it, I'm like, I'm 40, I'm not getting any younger from here. I've probably got another 20 to 40 years to live. How do you deal with it? You've seen more years than me. Or has it ever crossed your mind? So I don't know if you know, but in 2006, I was diagnosed with cancer. And that was the first time that my mortality actually crossed my mind. And you kind of really reprioritize um, your life dramatically um, when you're kind of facing death in the face at the end of the day. And really, there's nothing you can do. The reality is we're all going to die, whether we like it or not. We're all going one way. The question is, what is the legacy you're going to leave behind when you do? We're all human beings. So there's going to be some negative stuff. There's going to be some positive stuff. But hopefully when you balance it out, hopefully slightly more positive than there is negatives. So it's really about that. What can we do? How do we deal with certain issues, differences in society, 
um, also about your friends and your family. And those are the critical things that you start asking yourself. There's the other side is that I've been very privileged uh, and lucky, should I say, that my family lives till the ripe old age of 100, 107, etc. My dad is now 92 and he's been working right up until 92. You know, he's active. He, you know, he gets around. So, and he's a young 92 and that's impressive. And when you ask, either when you ask my grandmother or my grandfather, or even my dad is, what is it? And it's that zest for life, but also none of them wanted to retire. They felt that if they do retire, their minds are just going to go down and crash. So that was the interesting thing. I think that's an important part you mentioned in terms of keeping the mind active because that's one thing I heard from my dad is like, you have to keep your mind active because the, the sooner the mind stops being active, that's when deterioration yeah. comes in. You probably, you die first in the mind than dying in the body. But I like that you mentioned something about legacy and we've been following your work for some years and in the media industry and you, you're leaving quite a good legacy in terms of monitoring the media and just the media industry in general. One thing that's been frustrating and interesting in the media, both in South Africa and globally, is this issue of fake news. And it it looks like it's set to taint the legacy of many media companies and many people. And it's sort of become more prominent in the past decade, thanks to social media. In trying to curb it, many companies, many organizations have said that we can come up with fact-checking, which doesn't seem to be working, and all sorts of other methods. But can you give us like a short, brief history in terms of the media and fake news and how you see it playing out? So fake news hasn't been created by social media in reality because fake news was always there, um, whether it was word of mouth. And remember, is how do we take fake news is a perception. because if when my great my ancestors were sitting on an island in Greece and they were, they, there was no actual physical documentation and they used to tell a story, my grandmother from the one side of the family may tell a story in one particular way about what's happened with the family and the other grandmother on the other side might tell a completely different story. So perceptions play a huge role. I do think it's been exacerbated. I think the Trump administration has actually had exacerbated this a hundredfold social media has. And I don't know if we can do much about it. I am a, a vice president of an international association called FIBEB. It's a media monitoring association, okay. a global media monitoring association. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to partner with global organizations, um, fact-checking organizations, to try and see how do we manage this process at the end of the day. But because we're global... Let's see how we can actually try and do this. We haven't come to a solution at this stage, but the conversation at our last board meeting was really, let's see if we can partner with with some of these fact-checking organizations and see how do we take it forward. The other interesting part of research that we, we found is when we did the social media landscape report, we perceived that on Twitter, that there would be the majority would be negative content. And actually 61% of the content on Twitter was positive, which I found kind of quite surprising because you think it's more negative than positive. So so it was an interesting take, I must tell you. But I think from our perspective, it's also when you see something, let's see where it's coming from. Is it in the mainstream media? Not that I'm saying the mainstream media doesn't have fake news. It definitely does. Let's look at the different perceptions and see what's happening. Let's look at the slightly right-wing media, what are they saying? Slightly left-wing media, what are they saying? 
uh, something in the middle and try and join up all those conversations and kind of see what is the truth and what's not. There's no ways that you've got a solution to it. There's no ways. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned fact-checking as a solution. I have a little bit of a problem. So we part of what we do is we research and we've been looking at fake news and what's working, what's not working and how fake news spreads. And what you find with fact-checking is that, I'll give you a South African example, a very topical issue. Some murders are happening in South Africa, but they're not happening at the scale that some people are reporting. So it, that part is a fact. Some murders are happening. Now, somebody in social media will say, there's a genocide, for example. Yeah. Um, it starts as a tweet or something very small. And then a fact checker, because that person is quite prominent and it hasn't trended yet, and we've looked back, they will go as a fact checking service, look at that tweet and then write an article. And you know about the internet better than I do. I mean, you've got search engine optimization and all that. So they link back to that tweet, as part, which is good, which is part of fact checking. They say, no, we fact checked this. Now, what they've unfortunately done is given that lie or that false statement or that fake news, a bigger audience. Now, people who sort of lean towards this person's type of thinking, whether it be right wing or left wing, now go, oh, I never thought about that. Maybe there is a genocide of family. Now, they amplify that part and sort of disavow the, the fact checking. And then the cycle continues and it continues no. and it continues. So it's, I agree with you. It's a very tricky situation to deal no. with because on one hand, you want to correct it, but by doing that, you spread the word. Yeah. Hasn't it happened also with the coronavirus? I mean, what is the truth? I actually don't know what the truth is any longer. You get prominent researchers saying A, another prominent researcher saying B, and another... Pro yeah. So we are so confused. It's become a problem. And where, why I say social media sort of pushed it is because it just gives it a bigger audience and yeah. sort of amplifies it and spreads it further, etc. But... Before, we used to think that fake news doesn't have real-life consequences, but would you agree that we are starting to see that it can start to have real-life uh, influences in terms of coronavirus, health issues, in terms of politics as well? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it has real-life consequences. I think we're in the world at the moment because of the life uh, the consequences that, that it's had, yeah. the, the hatred that gets built up, the economic situation, mm. the distrust between China and America, all this stuff is, you, you don't know what you're listening to any longer, what is the truth and what isn't, you know, so it has real life consequences on, uh, on society and it's hugely problematic, hugely yeah. And I've just remembered another example, just to give you another example of how fake news, sometimes it's not even fake. It's just the distortion of a statement and making it sound. So in, I think it was the coronavirus was reported in 31 December last year by the World Health Organization. They reported about China. And in January, they said that so far, now this is how research works, if I understand it correctly. In January sometime, they tweeted and wrote a report that so far, based on our research in January, we haven't seen human-to-human -human transmission. So that's January. Obviously, when months pass and weeks pass, things change. Now, people on the right wing in America, on the Trump side, took that statement from January and said, the World Health Organization has been protecting China. They lied. They said there was no there was no human-to-human -human transmission. Ignoring all the facts that in February, in March, etc., they advise that new research shows that there's human-to-human -human transmission. So now, if you're not a critical mind, you sit there and you can easily agree with them and say, oh, no, this is true. These guys have been high. 
But the fact is, or based on research at the time, which happens all the time, if you look 10 years ago, there was research on different things and it showed different results. You can't judge the, the, the past based on present standards. So it's tricky and I, I really wish you good luck in trying to solve this. Yeah, society and human beings, we've really changed. I mean, I go running often, okay? And I'll say, it's just my personality, I'll say hi to everybody. And I find people used to say hi back. I'm finding that so many people at the moment just kind of, I'll say hi, and they kind of close up. They think, well, who's this alien at the moment, you know? So we've all kind of closed up so much, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. It's not the way the world should be. No, it shouldn't be like that. Now, how, I mean, it's also affected media, and how have you seen, or what's the role of journalists in terms of reporting on stories nowadays? Because it's becoming, as fake news is growing, more and more publications and Journalists are being caught with stories that they didn't really verify or finding themselves quoting people saying false things. So what's the role of journalists and media in trying to, to sort of tell the real stories? So I have to go back because whether we like it or not, the world revolves around money. And the problem is that real journalism costs a lot of money. It does. And we as consumers are not prepared to pay to get this content because we're used to getting content free of charge. And even when there's a paywall, we mumble and grumble and swear and try and work our way around it. And then we don't pay for it and then complain that that journalism has collapsed. And I think that's crossed so much. It's not only in journalism. We kind of want to buy a $1 t-shirt and then we wonder why there's sweatshops in India and China. Yeah. But we don't worry about going into shop and buy a $1 t-shirt. We think we've kind of got a good deal. So we're all selfish and greedy and instead of being selfless around what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and we can't change human behavior. I'm not saying we can change it, but that's what happens. So we're not paying for content any longer. We want it free of charge. We succumb to giving all our data and our behavioral data and our every data away free of charge so that we can get content free and then we complain that there's fake news. Well, that's what happens. You you can't do old style journalism and go and talk to a hundred people when the news cycle comes in at a flash and leaves at a flash. So you want to get the story as quickly as possible on your news site, um, but you also don't want to pay for it. So there's this conundrum that we have that I'm not sure how we're going to. So what happens is that as the media outlets, they're now reliant on donations and you and I can donate and then that's cool but then you have a big organization donating I don't know choose one uh, let's thumbsuck one um Bill Gates Foundation yes so okay we want to we're going to donate to X publications because we've got a lot of money all of a sudden is that news going to be biased towards the Bill Gates Foundation or that's, isn't it that's a good question so it becomes problematic we don't want to pay for it but then when somebody else is actually donating money to it then we complain that they've got a biased view towards that particular organization that's a very important problem or topic because for ages uh, the media has been relied on spreading information to the public or real information keeping companies keeping people accountable etc but with dwindling profits. I mean, we've seen in South Africa, uh, Media24 retrenched, Caxton closed some publications. I mean, does this mean they need to think of different business models? And I'm I'm not saying just digital, because digital is so broad, it can mean anything. But do they need to think of different business models to make it sustainable? The cool thing, I mean, I've hated lockdown because I'm a people's person. I want to see 
people. We've got to understand that we are moving into the new digital, digital world, whether we like it or not. I think there will still be some and a very small percentage of publications that will survive. So television didn't really kill radio at all. No. Uh, or, or radio didn't kill print. No. And television didn't kill radio, and I don't think that the digital will kill all the other mediums that were there before. It will kill it to a degree. In fact, you might see only Vanity Fair, let's say, for instance, that's, that, that's going to be published, or the Harvard Business Review, and nothing else. But they have to evolve. There's absolutely no doubt they're going to have to evolve. I don't know how they go and in what area they're going to evolve in. What I do know is that everything is going online. So if everything goes online, it means there's a lot more data. I have a fundamental issue of online publications being judge, jury, and executioner at the same time. So what happens is when you put, and let's use Facebook as an example, the data is not transparent. Okay, they keep their data. So now you want to put an ad on Facebook. You're playing per click through. So they judge, jury, and executioner. They tell you how much money you can spend on it. They tell you who's bidding how much on it. You don't know if they actually are. They tell you who's actually clicking on it. And they tell you how much you need to pay at the end of the month. Come on, guys. That's unacceptable. There's actually something happened with Facebook. It wasn't around ads, but it was around their video reporting statistics. I think it was last year or two years ago, where it was revealed that they were exaggerating the video views for you as a publisher, as a person. They were showing like 10, in some cases, 20 times of the views on the statistics dashboard instead of the actual views. And that was a big issue because as you said, and I I never thought of it like that, they are literally the agency, they, they place the ads and they determine the amount of money, and that's not right. No, it's absolutely not right. And it's happening across the board. You know, you don't really know the numbers of podcasts. They, they give you the number. Do you know how many? You don't. You don't, you don't really know. know. No. That's hugely detrimental to the industry because if you're not building trust, what do you have? Yeah. Nothing. Actually, when, when you mentioned podcasts, it's something we've been thinking about quite deeply for the past two years with Nzalo what we've ended doing with our podcasts, like this show that's gonna, that people are listening to, we've started hosting our own RSS feed. So that way, whenever somebody listens to the podcast on Apple, on SoundCloud, whatever they're listening to it on, whatever app they're using, we feed that platform, our RSS feed, and then we can see on our side with some level of detail where they're accessing from, how long they're listening to, et cetera. Because if you rely on the platforms, you don't really get much statistics back. Yeah. You don't know how they measure those statistics. And I'm, I guess it's the same with the ad business, right? Yeah. So you asked me the question, how, did, how does everybody evolve their, yeah. their, their business model? And I think their business model needs to evolve around this data. I think data is the new gold. And if we start thinking about how do we evolve our business around this data, and I'm not saying that they need to hold onto the data at the end of the day. By making data more and more transparent, I think it builds the trust. And once it builds the trust, I think more people will the trust to advertise on it, to engage with it, etc. So there was a fantastic presentation that was done. I'm trying to think. It was about two years ago. I can't remember if it was a if it was a PAMRO conference or if it, was a, uh, if it was a FIBEP conference, but it was one of those two conferences that there were some statistics in Spain that there was a central body that was actually looking at supplying data to the industry. 
the guys weren't happy, exactly what was happening was soft in South Africa at the time. Um, the guys weren't happy with, and rightly so, the methodologies weren't kind of working. So they brought it back in-house. And the media owners, that, and, I, and I'm almost sure it was radio, the media owners were actually in control of this data. The numbers started looking up. So the advertising then went up. All of a sudden, people started distrusting the numbers. And slowly, slowly, the, the ad spend started slipping and slipping and slipping and slipping and slipping. And the guys were, not, I thought, what? And then it kind of plateaued, but it was kind of low. They then took it out and they independently started verifying it. The numbers crashed. It crashed for like two, three months and then shot up through the roof because the trust started coming back. Now, I like that you mentioned data as part of the business model. Now, with traditional media, and I hear I'm talking about print, radio, and television, as we know them, like analog, if I can put it that way. No. The big issue I've always had with them is that I don't trust their numbers because I come from a digital world. I know that when a visitor visits our website, I can drill down to the IP address level and show you that this is the guy who visited and read this article. Now, can you explain to us as somebody in the media monitoring world how audience numbers are reported around radio, around print? I think print use something called circulation and around television because they so don't have digital like we do. I can tell you exactly how many people visit our site or listen to our podcast. Yeah. So what happens is it's done by, basically done by research. So what happens um, on television, it, and specifically DSTV, it's a little bit easier because they've got the set top boxes and it's a, a lot easier to get those numbers. But, but ultimately what they do is they look at um, the census. They know there's so many people in South Africa. These are the different segments, let's call it. They create an establishment survey and then they create samples out of that. So they sample it and they go out and they say, okay, these 3,000 people represent the 60 million people in South Africa. And in basic terms, that's what's happened, yeah. So, yeah, that's how they get their numbers, whether they're right or wrong. Again, I think if it's done independently and you get a, a much closer perspective than if it's done by a, a body that's paid by, by that, um, by that organization or industry. So you say you do know your numbers and that's what's beautiful about digital is that yeah. you actually do know your numbers. The problem is society and whatever it is, 5% of the people are maybe even less. 1% of people are hijackers. But the reality is you walk on the street and every car that passes you, you think is going to hijack you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And that's the issue that we have, even with whether it's podcasts, whether it's the digital space, is I believe the majority of people are honest and they give the real numbers. There's a small portion of, of the guys that fake their numbers, but then you don't know who the ones that are faking it. Then you start painting the whole industry with the brush of the small 5% of people that are irresponsible. And that's the problem, you know? Yeah. I mean, but with digital, I would argue it's easier because then you've got other sites that can sort of corroborate what your numbers are with sites, et cetera, because they'll measure SEO, like rankings, et cetera. It's not accurate, but it gives you some sort of comfort or idea how it goes. And I ask this because, again, we've seen media retrenching recently, but for years they've been reporting numbers, circulation numbers that seem impressive. But if all of a sudden they're retrenching, it makes you question the circulation yeah. Yeah, but therefore, you're right. I can argue those numbers in terms of even from a digital perspective. If there's click farms that you've employed, I, on I, accept, I accept that. So, I accept that. But having said that, I think the reality is if we want to improve our industry, transparency becomes, I think, transparency becomes a real uh, an important factor. And, and hard conversations. 
You know, even these conversations that we're having, I know that, you, that you're a podcaster, but let's have these conversations, you know what I'm saying, and debate them. The best way we learn about anything is when we debate them. That I look at my perspective, you look at your perspective, and let's debate and see where, 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 where the space actually is. We both learn out of it, let's be honest. No, I think true. going into, I mean, as you know, I mentor a lot of young kids, and I try and concentrate on the guys being under 30, maybe under 35. I, I think I'm... Me too stubborn. <laughs> yeah, the, the reality is I learn. I think I learn more out of them than they learn from me. And it's so cool, you know? Yeah. Why I was asking the, the numbers specifically around and explaining those, uh, how circulation and uh, listenership is measured on radio is it also affects advertising spend. Because I'll accept with, uh, and we see it a lot in digital, you have click farms, as you mentioned, and I see it a lot in where artists will buy clicks to make their songs popular on YouTube yeah. so that they rank on the first page, etc. And that happens a lot with other media as well. But the reality is these numbers, especially circulation for and distribution for print and radio, etc., affect advertising spend. And... I'd like to get your thoughts and maybe share some of the trends you've seen. Are you seeing advertising spend slowly move away from print and old media towards digital or it's still like old media stuff? So, no, it's a big question, actually. So stuff has moved to digital. There's absolutely no doubt about it that, that it's moved to digital. But again, digital, what is digital? Yeah. Do we consider social media as digital or don't we? So the, and then even in social media, do we consider... Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, they're all different mediums, okay? So how we approach the different mediums becomes absolutely, I don't think, a, we, we've spoken about it in the PR industry since I was a kid and started this business. A pray and spray doesn't work. And that was a pray and spray in 1984 where you have one television station called SABC. They didn't even have SABC 1, 2, and 3. Yeah. And then they had a few radio stations and they still said, don't spray and <laughs> spray yeah. and pray then can you imagine now so as human beings we try and make our lives easier and we just do it and we'll do an ad for television and we'll utilize this and put it onto youtube really can it work mm -hmm. it can't really because if you've got a 30 second on television no one that's going to go through a 30 second ad on youtube i don't know if anyone has done it my kids click skip ad within five seconds like as soon as exactly Exactly. So understand the medium, understand the story you want to tell and merge your story, your content with the medium and the audience of that medium. That's it. You know that on your show, you're going to have a particular target audience. Okay. Concentrate and do something for that. That's what's critical. Now within digital itself, as broad as it is, now there's another issue of programmatic advertising. I hope I used the, the right phrase. Yep which is now there's no agency, like you said, it's just one big ad network. Everybody feeds their ads and banners and text into there. And there's an automatic bidding and placement of ads. And something as a publisher, and we've totally removed programmatic advertising from our publication and trying to go with native. We've seen sort of CPM and CPC pricing dropping, like over, you almost need to have more and more audience as the years go by to just hit the same revenues. Would you agree with that? Yeah. There's programmatic. So there's automation and there's automation. Okay. And I find it absolutely problematic. So even in our business within the media monitoring space, we've created um, automation, but I still believe you need that human element. So let's go back to programmatic buying. Let, let me go back to the t-shirt again. So we want to buy a t-shirt for $1. 
but we forget about the supply chain and how it's going to affect everybody going down there because it's cheap to buy a $1 a $1 t-shirt. The same happens with programmatic buying. Oh, it's easy. I just put in six elements, hit the button, I can get rid of 16 people and my ad will kind of happen. There's a lot of arguments why it works better. And yes, it can make us more efficient in many ways, but I still believe we need the human element to be able to identify. So we use the automation to minimize what's happening because there's just too much out there. Okay. But we need the human brain to actually then take that and focus the buying much, much better. That's my take. I think using only programmatic buying as an industry, we're dead in the water. Yeah, even from publishing side, you end up with situations where you visit a news article and you've got like literally tens of banners, 10, 20 banners on the same article. You read one paragraph, there's two banners, there's one running on the side. You read two more paragraphs, there's four more banners. And that just affects the, again, goes back to the something you mentioned, the quality of the journalism. And part of the quality of the journalism is the user experience on how you consume that that content. That's why people end up, when it comes to print, people would buy something like high-end magazines like Monaco or newspapers like the Financial Times because the experience is so much better. You don't, you're not interrupted by three pages of ads no. before you get to an article. I don't know how we solve it. It really is affecting journalism. So you, you're right. It is affecting journalism. It's a problem. But you're saying, how do we solve it? I think you can never solve it all. I think what we need to do is solve some bits and edge forward and, and start solving others. The problem is it's a human behavior. And how do we change human behavior is, whew, is hectic. And we programmed to do the easy stuff rather than do the hard stuff. But I do think that when we're doing anything, specifically from our business perspective, we have to set particular objectives. So what is the objective that you want to achieve out of your business in the next year, five years, 10 years, whatever? If you've got a long-term view, that's cool if you're Chinese, but if you're not, then it's a five-year view. Um, once you have those business objectives, it then goes into the different departments, IT, finance, and in our space, it will go into marketing. Okay, guys, these are the business objectives you want. In the marketing department, what are our objectives to reach the business objectives? So we have particular marketing objectives that we need to change the system to be able to link back to those marketing objectives that we have. Because at the moment, we look at everything on outputs. Oh, this tweet was retweeted a million times. Yeah, and so what? You know what I mean? Because it's easy. Again, so when we talk about programmatic buying, we do it because it's easy. We look at um, retweets because it's easy. But that's not what should happen. The retweet may have helped, but did us link it back to the, the marketing objective or didn't we? And I think that's some of the things we need to change in our own businesses and what we expect out of our supply chain at the end of the day. I went to see this one of the, this brand and I was talking about exactly this. Let's look at the objectives. And the guys were saying, in a big brand, no, multinationals, all they want us to do is tick boxes. Have we done programmatic buying? Da, 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 da. For goodness sake, you're a big brand. How do you just tick boxes like that? That's kind of crazy. I, I walked out and I thought, I can't believe that a big brand like this, all they want to do is tick boxes. Let's put some thought. Let's be curious about what we're doing. Let's, let's be innovative. And that's what we need to do. I'm not saying everybody does it, but a lot of guys are just doing tick boxes. And, and we, we can't build an industry or anything if we're just ticking boxes. A computer can do that. Would you then say this gives birth to something we've again seen over the past five years or so called influencers because everybody just wants to tick box and say oh we had 
2 million retweets, the video was viewed 20 million times, irrespective of whether sales are made, irrespective of your reach, your brand awareness objectives or business objectives, as you said. Yep. So again, influencers, again, is for, for me a, a good and bad thing. So it can be problematic. So you look at a particular influencer and he's got 60,000 people following him. Great. This is really cool. As Nike, I'm going to actually utilize this guy or a million followers. I'm going to use it. But actually, he's a pianist and you're actually trying to target somebody completely different. So rather go for somebody who's got um, 60,000 rather than a million, but actually 60,000 people because he's a sports fan, he's into the kind of sp- and that's why, again, when I spoke about it earlier, understand what you want to try and do. So you set your objectives, you understand the medium, you understand the content that you have, and you try and merge all that stuff. And even the influencers, make sure that your influencer is the right influencer, just like you're looking at your platform and make sure that the platform and the content is the right place. So whatever you're doing, you need to think about and be curious about what you're ultimately doing. You raise a very important point, which I battled with when it comes to agencies and influencers and how they spend their budgets on that. Because I would think, again, let's use a sports brand, whatever the sports brand can be. I would think if you're a sports brand selling soccer shoes and soccer apparel, etc., you're better off going to coaches that coach small teams and having them as influencers because their word is trusted amongst their very small community. It's a very small community, but their word, if they say to the parents of a young kid, you know what, he'd be better off wearing Nike than Puma, chances are the parents are going to buy Nike and not Puma. Rather than getting someone with a million followers on Twitter who has a passing interest in football, yep. argument saying, and just poses with the clothes. If I can put it that way, you're not going to do much conversion and brand loyalty there with that coach who coaches in a month about 100 kids. Exactly. Going back to the $1 t-shirt, to actually find that coach is a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of time. So let me me do the easy thing and find this million follower. It's easy. I just go into Ornico's social media landscape report, find exactly who it is, and let's utilize this guy. No, let's put some thought into it, you know? Let's talk to Ornico. Let's have a look where, how do we break that million down, or anybody for that matter, or let's not even talk to Ornico. Let's go to the, the, these little clubs and let's kind of see who the coaches are. Is it's work, but we need to do the work. And the issue is there's so many more people being unemployed. Let's find work. Let's find work for this. Let's think about the world differently to what we did last year or the year before. You know, we have to think of the world differently. Now, talking of Audico, I mean, I think the business has evolved since you started it long before probably I was born. How's it evolved and what are you guys doing currently? For those <laughs> listeners who are not familiar with what you do. My goodness, we've evolved. Actually, I don't know if you know, but you know, we started as a wedding, a wedding production company. I remember that story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So we've definitely evolved from Videos, that. filming videos, photography. <laughs> we've, yeah. we've pivoted and pivoted and pivoted and keep pivoting. So yeah, I mean, the, the reality is for us as a business is to give clients ultimately want. They want to know ultimately what is the competitors, what is happening with the competitors? What are the competitors doing? They want to understand what are my competitors doing? What is my reputation in, in the media? And what are the consumers saying um, about my brand and the competitor's brand in social media? So wherever the consumer touches the media, we'll cover it. Whether it's advertising across TV, radio, outdoor print, mobile, direct marketing, et cetera, et cetera or whether it's in in the content space, in the editorial content space, across digital, TV, radio, again, print, whatever's left, online content and social media. 
And we combine all this data and provide insights to brands across that. So what is my reputation? What is my, um, what are my competitors doing? And we create gap analysis. But I think the important thing is, again, all of that is irrelevant. What do you want to achieve? The critical thing is, what does the brand want to achieve at the end of the day? And then we can fit in the analysis onto what the brand wants to achieve across that. And let's measure it, measure it across the periods. So you provide them with data to be able to see all that? We provide them with more than data. We actually provide them with insights. So we take the data because we, brands don't have the time to, to kind of ma- go through this mass of data. And so we've got systems, we've got algorithms, we've got human beings that, that actually do that. And these analysts are actually super bright people that take this stuff and analyze it and provide insights at the end of the day. Interesting. So you can tell brand that during last week you had negative reaction on social media, for instance. Oh, we can do that. That's simple because algorithms kind of do that. Okay, yes, I'm not saying that they're perfect and they're not. We can put human intervention in between and judge that. But I think it's much, much more than that because computers can do a lot of stuff. So algorithms can do a lot of stuff. So that's cool. The computers can tell you this is how many times this thing flighted. I can tell you all that can be done. Okay, but what... So, so what did we achieve out of that? And that's where, where, where the analysts and the, the, the human mind and the human spirit kind of join up, provide the insights into it. So again, it's about outcomes and impact. So what I did and the money that I spent, what outcome and what impact did it have at the end of the day? Oresti, uh, as I said, I mean, you've done a lot of great work in the media industry and media monitoring when you, since the days you started as a wedding photographer, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Remember to tell your friends, family, and colleagues that the show is available to listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, or any other app that you use to listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to head over to www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. That is www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. And subscribe to get notified on new episodes and any other iAfrican radio shows. Stay safe on the web.